Hello, I'm Oliver Colling, and this is my 70s TV childhood. Again, and welcome back to the podcast which remembers what it was like to grow up as a child in 1970s Britain and celebrates the role that television played in all of our lives back then. It was, certainly for me anyway, a very happy time where the sun always seemed to be shining and where there was always something good to look forward to on television. Now, I'm sure it wasn't always like that, but for me and my generation, it was the time when we grew up. Our parents and their friends probably saw the 1970s a bit differently, given the ongoing economic crises throughout the decade, as Britain played out the start of its post-industrial age. Thanks to all of you who've been in touch with comments on the series, and particular thanks for the growing number of listeners contacting me who've recently discovered the podcast and are binging it, helping my download stats no end. So please, if you do enjoy listening, tell your friends and pass the word on. As always, you can get in touch with your comments or suggestions for future topics for the podcast by emailing me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com. You can comment on social media, either on our Facebook page at my70stvchildhood or by tweeting us at 70stvchildhood. And you can also leave a message on our blog at www.my70stvchildhood.com. Now, This episode is going to look a little beyond the shores of the United Kingdom in the 1970s and take us back to what we knew, or actually more likely what we thought we knew, about a faraway country which was a bit like Britain, but not quite the same. Australia. Neighbours, everybody needs good neighbours with a little understanding. Can find the perfect plan. Neighbors So what's so interesting about that, I hear you say? We know all about Australia. We've all seen neighbours from home and away. And many of us have actually visited Australia. Pre-pandemic, it seemed that almost every young person was going travelling in Oz as part of a rite of passage between education and adulthood. But take yourself back to the 1970s, and it wasn't like that at all. When I was a child, Australia seemed like a very far away place. We all knew someone whose aunt or uncle had emigrated to Australia as a £10 pom in the 60s or 70s, But the thought of anyone actually going there for a holiday was almost as ridiculous as going to the moon. I've been reminded of this by the recent announcement that the Australian soap opera Neighbours has been cancelled after more than 35 years on our screens. It helped change the British perception of Australia 
and it reminded me how Australia appeared to me as a child growing up in the 1970s. If you cast your minds back to the 1980s, Australia became a cool, happening place all of a sudden, when we had things like Paul Hogan appearing in Crocodile Dundee, showing off Australia's natural beauty at its best, and Aussie bands like Men at Work, Mental as Anything, Crowded House and In Excess emerging into the European mainstream. And then, of course, we had Neighbours, which was first shown on UK TV during my first week at university in 1986, which was, incidentally, the first week that the BBC moved to showing programmes all day. Up to this point, and yes, I'm talking about 1986, the corporation had gaps in service during the day, which were filled either by the test card or by pages from CFAX, the BBC's teletext service. Now, for any younger listeners who don't remember CFAX, it's, well, it's really a bit difficult to explain. Um, Text information was carried on the frame of normal television programmes, and then by pressing a few buttons on a remote control... Actually, on second thoughts, I suggest you Google it, as it may take a bit bit of time for me to explain it to you. Uh, Other search engines are available, of course. Anyway, Neighbours and its contemporary Home and Away made Australia accessible, friendly, attractive and, dare I say it, rather sexy. Millions tuned in to see Kylie and Jason get married, both in this country and in Australia. And the show provides happy memories of the 1980s and 90s for many, particularly college students of that era. As I said earlier, we all knew someone who had a relative who had emigrated. But other than that, much of our knowledge was based on what we learned at school and on popular culture. I remember doing a project at primary school. Yes, as I've mentioned before in previous episodes, we always seem to be doing projects during primary school. Um, And often they were about countries. When I was clearing out some old boxes a few years ago, I found a number of my primary school projects, which were all about countries. Now, for reasons I can't remember, my choices were New Zealand, Australia and the USSR. And I have to say, all three seemed like another planet when I was writing about them at Padgate Primary School. Looking at my folder on Australia, much of the material I'd included had been cut out of very informative brochures I'd been sent by the Australian High Commission. If you remember, the first point for all projects was to write a very polite letter to the embassy or the High Commission of the country you'd chosen, and they invariably replied with all sorts of fascinating articles about things like sheep farming in New Zealand or cattle stations in Western Australia. Looking back at the words and pictures I cut out for Australia, it looked like the photos had come from the first half of the 20th century and probably helped cement my view of Australia as a rather old-fashioned, pleasant backwater of a place where everyone lived on cattle stations, or if they didn't live on a cattle station, they lived in direct sight of the Sydney Opera House and the Harbour Bridge. Oh, and by the way, I never had any response from the USSR when I wrote for them asking details of, of what they did. But anyway, that's another story. And that was about all we were taught about Australia at the school, apart from the unusual animal life like kangaroos, koalas, and of course, the duck-billed platypus. Oh, and we did learn to sing Waltzing Matilda in our folk singing lessons, so I knew from a relatively early age what swagmen, billabongs and tuckerbags were. We were also reminded what a loyal ally Australia was, and what a sacrifice she had made during both world wars. 
And that, I'm afraid to say, was about the extent of my practical education. And what I learned in later life is a fascinating and incredibly diverse country. Anyway, the other source of information was popular culture. We regularly heard Charlie Drake's novelty record, My Boomerang Won't Come Back, played on Junior Choice by Ed Stupot Stewart. But the Australian who had the biggest profile when I was growing up was someone who was everywhere, on television, on radio, even in a public information film encouraged us all to learn to swim. Those of you who can't swim yet, then if you just wait over in the shallow for me. Kids and water, they love it. Rivers, canals, even the lily pond in the garden. You can't keep them away from it. Water has a fascination for children. And I should know, when I was three years old, I fell in the river at our place, couldn't swim, somehow managed to scrabble my way to the bank, frightened the wits out of my mum and dad. And you can bet they had me taught to swim very soon after that. But some children aren't quite so lucky. And if they can't swim and they go off by themselves to play by the side of some water somewhere, you know only too well what might happen. That's why I had my little girl taught to swim as soon as possible. So have your children taught to swim. They're never too young to start, and once they get that confidence in the water, they love it. Ask at your local swimming pool, all right? Or if you can swim yourself, why not teach them yourself? It's fun. See you. Rolf Harris suffered a spectacular fall from grace as a result of the Operation Utri investigations carried out by British police forces after the exposure of Jimmy Savile's criminal behaviour after his death. And I don't propose to dwell on the details involved. All I will say is that Harris was convicted of some terrible crimes, but that doesn't change the fact that he was everywhere on British TV in the 1960s and 1970s. He was also a musician, a singer-songwriter and an artist. After originally coming to the UK to go to art college, Harris originally worked for the BBC as an artist and cartoonist before graduating onto presenting, as well as developing his musical career by playing in a bar called Down Under, which was habituated by people from Down Under, obviously. After some success with the BBC, Harris returned to Australia in the late 50s, where he worked on the early days of Australian television, and also recorded his first record, the self-written Timey Kangaroo Dance Sport. Now, the story goes that when Rolf recorded the song, he offered four local session musicians 10% of the royalties from the song in lieu of a fee. But, unfortunately for them, they all elected to take the £7 fee paid up front for the recording session, as they didn't see a novelty record as a winner. Well, how wrong they were, because Timey Kangaroo Down was Harris's first number one hit in the UK, and he followed it up with Jake the Peg, diddle, 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 with the extra leg, diddle, 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 and most successfully with Two Little Boys, which we took to number one in 1969, where it stayed for six weeks, making it the last number one of the 1960s and the first number one of the 1970s. On TV, the Rolf Harris show was a regular primetime Saturday show between 1967 and 1974, featuring its mix of songs, guests and sketches, the usual sort of variety show for the time. It also featured his art, usually where he would take a huge space and, using broad brushstrokes, create something really unexpected as art. 
invariably using what had become his catchphrase. Can you see what it is yet? Rolf Harris was a fixture on British TV in the 1970s, and we should not forget this, in spite of what transpired later. For me, I liked his songs, and also some of his fascination with cartoons. I was never so keen on the art stuff, though, but I did appreciate his undoubted talent in that sphere. As the 70s wore on, Rolf increasingly fronted shows aimed at children, and I remember one in particular very well. Rolf on Saturday was a sort of huge game show uh, combined with sections of Rolf and guests singing and him completing a huge artwork and that kind of thing. It also used to feature his wobble board, but unfortunately, as far as I can remember, not his stylophone, which he used to advertise on TV every Christmas. What was a bit different was that whole primary schools took part in the show rather than individuals on a team. So I and many of my schoolmates dreamt that we might make it onto the show one day. I do remember mentioning this to our headmaster, Mr Smith, on a visit to his office. Through the fug of cigarette smoke which permanently hung in the air in there, I'm sure I saw him raise one eyebrow before he sent me back to class with a flea in my ear. So he never got to be on Rolf on Saturday, or we are the champions, or screen test, or anything else as it happened. But we were always hopeful. Rolf Harris continued to be a fixture on British TV right until his fall from grace and was much loved by many for Rolf's Cartoon Club, his series on portrait painting, where he even painted the Queen, and of course, Animal Hospital, where, with tears in his eyes, he let us know that, unfortunately, the little fella didn't make it. But Rolf Harris wasn't the only insight into Australia we had on 70s TV. We also had Dame Ed Reveridge. Hello, possums. Yes, it's me, Dame Edna, and aren't I looking gorgeous? The housewife superstar, who held court with her bridesmaid Madge in silent attendance, ran her chat show, which she described as an intimate conversation between two friends, one of whom is far more interesting than the other. But even this didn't give as much insight into what life was really like in Australia. For that, we had a small but vital number of Aussie-made dramas, which showed us what life was really about down under. The first one I remember, and one of my favourites, was about his boy, his brother, his father, and a kangaroo.
Skippy the Bush Kangaroo was brilliant, and I loved it. The star was a kangaroo who lived in the Waratah National Park and who had been befriended by Sonny and his older brother Mark, who were the children of the widowed Matt Hammond, who was a head ranger of the park. Now, every episode dealt with some kind of danger or peril happening in the park, ranging from landslides through to the, and actually quite often, the irresponsible actions of visitors. The small and unusually intelligent Skippy was not a pet, and it was often reiterated in the series that Skippy lived in the park and was free to come and go as she pleased. Skippy was a remarkable kangaroo, to say the least. She was able to communicate with the ranger and the boys. She could open doors. She could carry things in her pouch, cross streams on narrow logs, foil every kind of villain, rescue hapless bushwalkers, untie ropes, collect the mail, and even operate the radio. And I seem to remember one episode, she even managed to place a bet on a horse race at Randwick Racecourse. And, of course, she won. Everything about Skippy, the ranger and his family, and even the visitors to the park, once they'd learned not to drop litter or to start forest fires or whatever they'd, they'd done wrong, they were all fundamentally good people and kangaroos. And therein lies much of its charm. It was also fascinating for me as a young boy in the north of England to imagine a house where a kangaroo came and went as she pleased, was treated as part of the family, and had a very useful knack of saving everyone from disaster every single week. Skippy has a special place in the memories of those who grew up with the show in the 60s and 70s, so much so that an advert for Rolo in the 1990s drew upon the show for inspiration. Your favourite. Yep, it's my last one. Save for the best mate a boy could ever have. Here you go, Mark. Gee, thanks, mate. G'day, Skip. What's that? Someone pushed the boys in the billabong. Who could have done that? There were also some more gritty dramas which came to us from Australia in the 70s and which showed a tougher street to life down under. My favourite of these was about the adventures of a couple of drifters, Charlie Cole and his grandson Pete Jarrett, who travelled around Australia in their old Land Rover, finding some sort of adventure wherever they ended up. The Outsiders was gripping TV drama, and it opened my young eyes to a whole different world of Australian life. In every place they visited, they were met by a mixture of suspicion and some welcoming friendship, and they had to work out who were the good or bad guys, and sort out whatever problem they came across, which, from memory, included murder, theft, forgery, and political corruption. Oh, and in most cases, they were the prime suspects, being not from round here. 
It was also the first show I remember which featured a realistic representation of Aboriginal Australians and reflected the discrimination that they faced. Quite something for the time. Unfortunately, only one series of the show was ever made, but for me, even more than 40 years since I last saw an episode, the show is vivid in my memory. So we looked at Australians on UK TV in the 1970s and got a bit of a taste of Aussie drama from that period too. But what I remember really opening up my views on Australia were those recurring dramas, you know, the ones we call soaps, which began to be shown on British TV in the late 70s. The Young Doctors had it all. Life and death drama, romance, betrayal, adultery, violence. And that was just amongst the staff before we got onto the patients who provided the staple emotional roller coaster of hospital based drama. Actually, in fact, the medical drama seemed to play second fiddle to the emotional relationships between the staff. The show was set in the Albert Memorial Hospital in Sydney and was clearly filmed on a shoestring budget as all of the action took place, at least in the early years, within the four walls of the hospital, the majority of which shook if anyone stood too near to them. Apparently, Network 9, which made the show, had spent most of its budget on the Sullivans, another Aussie soap exported to us in the 70s, so there was literally hardly any money left for the young doctors. A boy did it show! However, the increasingly outrageous plots and the scarcely believable characters kept us riveted to the screen. They included Sister Scott, a fearsome matron who ran the wards with a rod of iron and who I seem to remember fell down a lift shaft on one episode, but I may need to confirm that. The earnest Dr. Graham Steele with a huge pair of glasses, which was very popular with many 1970s characters, who went on to marry the rather more glamorous Sister Eve Turner. Uh, There was Ada, who was a hospital gossip who ran the hospital shop, I managed to get wind of everything that was happening in the wards. And we also had a full range of rather randy, suave, sophisticated doctors romancing the entire nursing complement of the Albert Memorial. Men like Dr Ben Fielding, who was a real smoothly and a sort of classically handsome 70s man. And the cold-hearted Dr John Forrest, played by Alan Dale, who went on to play Jim Robinson in Neighbours. Well... Hang on, if you look at the cast members of The Young Doctors, most of them went on to appear in one or more of Neighbours, Home and Away, The Sullivans, Sons and Daughters, and of course, we mustn't forget, Prisoner, Cell Block H. So it's not only Jim Dale who's on that list. There are also lots of female Doctors. So not entirely stereotype casting, although the female Doctors suffered from just as much, if perhaps not more, emotional drama than their male colleagues did. You know, I'm just glad I was never a patient at the Albert Memorial Hospital, so I didn't get much attention in the show, except to provide the occasional death-related drama or unlikely love interest strictly against the rules. Anyway, it may have been cheaply produced, may have had dodgy scripts and sets, but it was very popular when it appeared in the UK, and it paved the way for the future successes of Australian soaps in the 1980s. 
and the transformation of how we saw Australia in Britain. Very quickly, Australia shed its image of sheep stations, ten-pound poms, and Rolf Harris to become the glamorous and highly admired country we see it as today. Increased access to affordable travel means that Australia is now within most of our capabilities to see and to appreciate, and I do hope that travel restrictions don't return to threaten that access once again. Well, that's about all for now. Was I alone in thinking of Australia as a faraway country of which we knew little during the 1970s? Let me know. Remember, you can get in touch on our blog, www.my70stvchildhood.com, tweet at 70stvchildhood, email me, oliver at my70stvchildhood.com, or visit our Facebook page at my70stvchildhood. Well, take care and join me again soon for more from My 70s TV Childhood.